And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a democratic party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class, and I think that what I represent, and, and perhaps you know Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party, and I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist, retired professor of sociology, and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling a hitchhiker's guide to the Democratic Party. Greeting friends and our guest today, we're very honored to say is Bob Kuttner. Bob is co-founder and co-editor of American Prospect, which uh, to my mind is the leading magazine that is walking some of the same paths we try to uh, be on here at the podcast, namely examining it in depth. The left wing of the possible, as Michael Harrington used to talk about it, especially what the left wing of the possible is in relation to the Democratic Party and the administration's run by Democrats. Uh, Bob is a uh, journalist of tremendous note over decades of work in a number of different ways. Uh, he's a professor of social policy at Brandeis University. He's uh, one of the founders of the Economic Policy Institute, a key think tank for progressives. He's a uh, active participant in Demos, or has been, and a number of other institutional settings. I can't even begin to uh, uh, recount his uh, work over the, these years. A number of very important books, a pioneer maybe in examining in our time the relationship between global capitalism and democracy uh, or the ways in which that relationship uh, is so contradictory and in conflict. So welcome, welcome. So I wanted to uh, start with uh, one of the reasons I was eager to have you join us on this, and that is because of your work monitoring the processes of appointment uh, to the uh, Biden camp. Uh, you started to work on this months ago, uh, warning uh, uh, us even then in, in your work uh, of the kinds of appointments that would uh, be pointing down the wrong road as far as you were concerned, and I think as far as a lot of us were concerned. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about the results of that effort on your part to examine that, why that's important, uh, and how you evaluate what's the final outcome or near final outcome uh, of that recruitment and appointment effort. Well, I'm actually uh, very encouraged. Uh, if you go back to February and March, when it still looked as if uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders might conceivably be the nominee, 
Biden was one of the more center-right people in the Democratic field. And, of course, the entire experience with uh, Clinton and uh, Obama and then Hillary Clinton, although they were very good on, on some issues, when it came to uh, reigning in Wall Street and the whole corruption of uh, capitalism, uh, they were terrible. They, they appointed Wall Street Democrats to leading positions. They were almost indistinguishable from the Republicans in their embrace of deregulation, neoliberalism, the idea that markets can do no wrong. And um, Biden was very much part of that crowd. He had a huge amount of Wall Street financial support. So we had every reason to worry. And uh, I wrote a piece in March after it was clear that uh, that Biden would be the nominee called the Biden DNR list, as in do not reappoint. And I flagged uh, 12 leading Wall Street Democrats who played major roles in either the Clinton administration or the Obama administration or both, who under no circumstances should be uh, reappointed by Biden should he be elected. And in fact, 11 of them were not reappointed. And the, the 12th got a, a relatively secondary position. Now, why did that happen? Well, one reason is the press of events. Uh, I mean, uh, we have a pandemic, we have a recession, both of them are getting worse. And so Biden is having to be somewhat more Rooseveltian than he might have originally uh, intended. Secondly, um, a hanging concentrates the mind and the whole progressive ecosystem has come together to support Biden, who just barely got elected. And so we were spared the usual circular firing squad that the Democratic Party is so famous for. But um, at the same time, the progressive wing of the party uh, has had a lot of influence in making sure that really terrible people don't get appointed. The prospects played a role in that. I, I mean, what, what, what happened after we started writing these pieces was that we became a kind of a go-to publication and people started leaking stuff to us and then we would put stuff out, watch out, so-and-so is seriously being considered for such and such a job. And then that would signal the progressive movement to really put the pressure on. And I think we, we did play an important role. I mean, we, we helped make sure that Janet Yellen, rather than somebody much worse, would be appointed treasury secretary. I think we played a role in in making sure that one of the usual suspects was not appointed uh, U.S. trade rep. We've got Catherine Tai, who's going to be very, very good, uh, very much of a revisionist in terms of the traditional uh, World Trade Organization liturgy. And um, also, I think uh, ethnic chessboard politics helped in surprising ways in that, not in every case, but in some cases, the need to appoint large numbers of women and Asian Americans and African Americans uh, to positions, um, you know, as, as you play this game of mix and match, you, you sometimes end up with more progressive people than you might have intended. So the, the, the person who ended up being U.S. trade rep, Catherine Tai, Asian American, he might not have appointed uh, somebody quite that progressive if he had not needed a, an Asian American. Same thing with Becerra for HHS, who's a single payer guy. Uh, other cases, Deb Holland, it is a case of responding to pressure from constituent groups. But the fact of the matter is that we've ended up, particularly on energy and environment, which connects very directly to infrastructure, green infrastructure in particular, but infrastructure generally, it's a, it's a wonderfully progressive group of people. And the, the people on economic issues is not too bad, given what might have happened. 
The other little nuance here is that um, Biden had virtually no field operation for somebody who was a leading contender for the nomination. And as a consequence of that, he was more reliant on the rest of the progressive infrastructure uh, to get elected. And so you, you have something less than we had under Clinton and Obama of the president saying, thank you very much. I'll take it from here. You guys can go home. He realizes he needs the rest of the progressive movement to keep organizing on the ground if he is not going to lose the House in 2022 and even better if he's going to take back the Senate in 2022. So I'm I'm hopeful of where Biden's going. I'm hopeful of the role the progressive movement is playing. And uh, I'm rather surprised to hear myself saying that because it could have come out much, much worse. I wanted to examine a little bit more why these appointment matters are, are very important in, in looking toward the future. Is what difference does it make who's in there? And your particular mention of Wall Street reminded me that when I was teaching political sociology, I would... Uh, start the course almost with an anecdote that uh, Arthur Schlesinger tells in his book about the Kennedy administration, where Kennedy was told that in order to put together his cabinet, he needed to talk to Robert Morse Lovett, who was a major figure in the liaison between Wall Street and government at that time. And Lovett told him he had to appoint Robert McNamara, head of the Ford Motor Company, Dean Rusk, head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and Douglas Dillon, who was a major Wall Street banker. And he said, you can put them in either of the three positions, state, defense, or treasury. Uh, and, and those were the appointments that Kennedy made. It was like an automatic situation, the way Schlesinger describes it. Lovett will tell you who should be in your cabinet. So obviously, Wall Street people, among others, think this is very important. Uh, but uh, can you say a little bit, this may sound like an obvious or strange thing to ask, but why is it important who's in these positions? Well, you know, the president of the United States by himself or his chief of staff can only do so much. And uh, the secretary of the treasury has a colossal amount of discretionary power and also power to advise the president on what to do. Now, the most progressive appointee possible got that job, Janet Yellen. And uh, because she's been at the Fed, uh, she really knows a lot about how finance works. She was chair of the Fed. But uh, Janet Yellen was an academic economist. She was a labor economist. She believes in full employment. Uh, she's the most left-wing uh, Fed chair uh, since, since FDR appointed Mariner Eccles, and probably the most left-wing Treasury secretary maybe ever because she doesn't come out of Wall Street. She's never consulted Wall Street. She's never worked on Wall Street. And so she doesn't come in with that set of biases. And when these guys come in from Wall Street, you know, the, the, the main question they ask is, how can we keep Wall Street's business model intact as we kind of clean it up around the edges? Now, Wall Street's fundamental business model is toxic for the economy and particularly toxic for the disproportionate financial influence and political influence that all these enormous investment banking houses have. So we did as well as we possibly could have done. And I've been doing some reporting on the effort of the Wall Street Democrats to impose sub-cabinet people on Janet Yellen so that she will not entirely control 
her own department. But I mean, Yellen knows how the game is played. And I assume that there will be a back and forth as to uh, will, will you eat this appointee? No, I won't, but I might eat that one. And that's the kind of jockeying that, that, that goes on for the undersecretary slots, the assistant secretary slots, the deputy assistant secretary slots. But she knows finance very well. So it matters both in terms of the, how, how the department is run day to day, all kinds of judgment calls that are made by the department, and then what the secretary of the treasury uh, advises the president on some of these bigger policy questions where the president personally weighs in. So do you think she is actually intends to kind of resist that Wall Street uh, penetration? Well, I think she will, you know, she's not a radical. Elizabeth Warren would have resisted it more, but she is less of a Wall Street Democrat than any Treasury secretary within <laughs> within uh, living memory. And that means we have a shot at constraining some of the more flagrant abuses of the whole financial lock uh, on the economy, which is at the heart of grotesque inequality, which in turn is at the heart of what brought us Donald Trump as a kind of a faux uh, working class, uh, you know, president. So uh, given the power and interests of Wall Street, are we to worry about them to uh, having a backlash against these appointments? I don't think we, we call it a backlash, but I think day in and day out, they're going to continue to exercise as much influence as they possibly can. And that's not only going to be via the Treasury, but it's going to be via a lot of the, you know, the semi-independent and independent regulatory commissions. And we'll, we, we still have to see who gets appointed head of the SEC. Uh, antitrust is another one where, you know, after being completely moribund for 40 years, antitrust moment has come around again because the abuses have been so grotesque. You had attorneys general in 38 states, Republicans as well as Democrats, signing on to these uh these antitrust actions against the big platform companies and some of the biggest investment banks, which have much too much market share, are also vulnerable on the antitrust front. You got the, uh, you know, you have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you, you've got the Commodity Future Trading Commission. And for the most part, the people who are in the running for these key regulatory jobs are pretty good people as well from, from everything I've been able to find out. And there are a couple of more dramatic, potentially dramatic appointments. In, for example, Labor Department hasn't been appointed, and the Attorney General is a very big one. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you have any comment on what you expect there. Well, Labor Department's interesting. Uh, I mean, you've got four really good people in uh, contention, and you've got the labor movement a little bit split, but... Um, Julie Sue, California uh, Labor Secretary, I guess. Terrific. Uh, uh, um, Patrick Gaspard, who was the political director of the SEIU before he became Obama's political director. Obama then appointed him ambassador to South Africa. He then became president of the Open Society Foundation. He's in the running. Uh, Levin is in the running. Marty Walsh is in the running. You know, they're, they're, they're all progressives. They would all do a good job. Steve Rosenthal, who used to be the political director of the AFL-CIO, who's just really, really knowledgeable, reminded me that the, the last previous and only president ever to appoint, uh, on the Democratic side anyway, uh, a labor secretary directly out of the labor movement was Woodrow Wilson. You, you, you had a couple of Republicans appoint stooges 
who were sort of the wrong kind of labor leader. But so this is good. I worry a little bit about Commerce Secretary, and I'll tell you why. This is typically the job under a Democrat that you give to a Republican or to a billionaire business person. And um, this time, if we're going to try and reclaim American manufacturing and have some kind of industrial policy that dovetails with job creation and uh, dovetails with a more um, uh, progressive version of America first kind of uh, progressive economic nationalism so that we can rebuild some of these economies, uh, the Commerce Secretary has to be not your token you know, corporate CEO or your token Republican, but somebody who really believes in industrial policy. So I'm a little bit worried about Commerce Secretary. And uh, AG could be any number of people. And again, they're, they're playing this three-dimensional chess where it's ethnic diversity. It's also which of the old boys hasn't gotten a job yet. It's also geographic diversity. So the last pieces still have to fall into place. But on the whole, I would not have guessed in a million years that the uh, Biden cabinet uh, would be this progressive. Thank you so much uh, for your, your work on the prospect. I'll be giving subscriptions as a gift to family, as I often have done in the past. Um, it's a really great resource. Thank you so much for that. So I, I, wanna, I have a sort of two-part question. And it really picks up on something that you said uh, earlier about about Biden in particular and his relationship to progressive organizations or the progressive movement uh, because of uh, the dynamics of this election. So that, that's a really interesting point to me. So first, who, who do you see as this progress is the progressive movement in terms of organizations? Um, that you think Biden is going to be looking to or relying on for uh, um, for strength out in the field for for electoral strength, and secondly, you know, did did those organizations play a role or do they play a role? Are they playing a role in the construction of the cabinet in this process? And I, I ask that because the one name that has come up or you know that that is a, a cabinet nominee who a lot of folks on the left were provoked by. Um, was near a Tandon. And I don't want to get into sort of like the particulars of her biography and so forth. But it, it did occur to me that this is somebody who comes from CAP, the closest thing to a center left permanent, you know, government, partisan government in waiting. But that, it, you know, is sort of from our perspective, from a, a left, a social democratic or a progressive perspective, not always great on the issues. But I'm I'm interested in your as a journalist, as an observer of this like, what role do these foundations or networks of organizations, what role are they playing and what should progressive observers be paying attention to there? Yeah, it's a great question. L let me do this in a couple of different ways. Let me give you best case, worst case. So best case, all of the resistance groups and all of the rest of the progressive coalition comes together and works towards a common goal. And that happened in Arizona, where Arpaio was the common enemy. And all the groups kind of pulled together in the same direction. The party, the movement groups, the resistance groups that started after 2016. Um, same thing in Georgia. We, we have to wait and see whether it's sufficient. But all of the, all of the groups, the progressive groups on the ground and the, and the, the party, um, uh, are are all pulling in the same direction. The same thing happened in uh, 
in Wisconsin, where you had a particularly talented uh, uh, state party chair, Ben Wickler, and the need to make sure that, um, you know, you didn't lose any seats so that uh, the, 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 the Republicans didn't, didn't have a, a, you know, the ability to overturn the governor's vetoes. Um, now, the other, end of the, <laughs> the other end of the spectrum is New York, where you've got uh, a Democratic governor in Andrew Cuomo, who's reminiscent of a kind of Tammany boss. And instead of uh, Cuomo seeing a Working Families Party and AOC and some of these primary winners as assets, he sees them as threats. So that's sort of as good as it gets and as, as bad as it gets. And um, the progressive infrastructure, you know, includes everybody who, whose names we all know. I mean, it includes the, the indivisible groups, it includes Move On. It includes the, the issue groups like uh, League of Conservation Voters and all of the, all of the, the uh, environmental groups. It includes Planned Parenthood. It's the usual progressive coalition really hyper-mobilized by the common threat of Trump and now hyper-mobilized to keep Biden moving in a progressive direction. You've also got some really interesting progressive state party chairs. It's not just Ben Wickler who really want the National Democratic Party to put more money into state and local-based organizing year in and year out so that you don't start thinking about defending the House and gaining seats in the House you know, in April of an election year, but you do it on, on day one, you do it year in and year out. So um, that's what all that looks like to me. We may get a party chair who is committed to that kind of uh, on the ground, person to person organizing, which made a tremendous difference in 2018 in picking up 40 House seats and picking up down ballot uh, seats and was short circuited in 2020 by the pandemic. I mean, uh, as good as uh, digital organizing is, and as good as telephone organizing is, uh, as, as Dick knows better than I do, nothing beats face-to-face -face organizing. And the fact that that was short-circuited is one of the big reasons why Biden barely won and why we lost so many down-ballot races. And one hopes that we pick up where that left off once the, uh, once the pandemic is over. Let me say an unkind word about Neera Tandon. I don't think you have to worry about Neera Tandon because I don't think Neera Tandon is going to be confirmed. I think Neera Tandon, although she ran an enormous center-left uh, emphasis on center uh, think tank, was very hyper-partisan and spent years just doing very snarky, personalized emails against Republicans. And so she's going to be the human sacrifice. She's going to be the one that they don't confirm. And they've already uh, wheeled up uh, some contenders, some backup people into the on-deck circle on the assumption that she's not going to be confirmed. I think most of the rest of them probably are going to be confirmed. Uh, enough Republicans have sent signals that they don't want to play the game of denying a new president his nominees. They will block legislation as much as they can. But I think most of the rest of the cabinet uh, will probably be will probably be confirmed. But she is the she is the one most likely not to be confirmed, not ideologically. She's more centrist than a lot of the others. But just because CAP, even though it's part of it as a 501c3, has been uh, been very, very hyper partisan. And I'll tell you a story. When CAP was founded, we at the Prospect did a joint event with them on foreign policy. And John Podesta, who was then the, the founding head of CAP, said to me, Bob, do not mistake our ferocity when it comes to the Republicans for ideological positioning. That is, we are not as left-wing as you are, 
even though we're very anti-Republican. So I think that's true of Neera Tandon as well. So as a follow-up, why is it that being partisan and you know focusing a lot of uh, energy and attention and resources towards uh, attacking Republicans or refuting their claims, um, why is there a divide between that partisanship and being more progressive, the, the ideological piece, so to speak, the 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 question of values or policy preferences. You know, one of the questions that we're tackling in this podcast is, you know, uh, both reckoning with the historical reality and also trying to push back on it that the left has this reticence about being uh, robustly, consistently partisan about the Democratic Party per se, about the actually existing Democratic Party. Um, I'm wondering if. If you could just reflect on on that, because even in the way that you were just telling that story, there was a kind of dichotomy there. Let's unpack the different meanings of partisan. So Neera Tandon made the tactical incautious error of personalizing things and attacking individual Republicans for, for you know, sins that were richly deserving of attack, but they keep score. They have they have long memories. So she was partisan in a very personal way. I think when it comes to the, the various uh, gradations of left, there are some people who are left of the typical mainstream Democrat who recognize that, you know, we're, we're, we're never going to have a socialist party in the United States of any consequence because the whole structure of the system precludes third parties. And so we're going to stand or fall with the Democratic Party. And the best thing we can do is to try to take it over. And the second best thing we can do is to try to influence it. And there are other people on the left who are more skeptical of the Democratic Party. They think the Democratic Party is hopelessly compromised. And, you know, you go all the way out to sort of the left wing of the Jacobin crowd. Uh, some of them weren't even sure that, it, that they wanted to vote for Biden. So my own view is, uh, you know, somebody said to me once, uh, are, are you for a third party? And I said, I'd be for a second party, meaning that uh, we, we really need to make sure that the Democratic Party is a progressive party. And that means sometimes, you know, you work with it and sometimes you put a lot of pressure on it. And I think the great thing about this election, because the stakes were so high, uh, defending American democracy itself, in this election, everybody worked to get Biden elected. Everybody was rather disciplined in that effort. And at the same time, uh, people who were to the left of Biden kept the pressure on. I mean, we did it as a, as a magazine to do a lot of reporting on the risk that bad people uh, would get nominated, try to head that off at the past, try to signal the progressive movement, you know, watch out for this guy. He's on the fast track and we need to make some noise so that that doesn't happen. And uh, so I think in terms of the progressive movement, both working with and putting pressure on uh, a democratic administration, this is about as good as it gets. And Dick will remember, as I do, the, the SDS uh, slogan circa 1964, part of the way with LBJ. It was a brilliant slogan. It, it meant that on the one hand, uh, LBJ is only going to get us part of the way to where we need to get as a domestic reformer. And it also meant that we broke with him over Vietnam. And we were part of the way with LBJ. Well, uh, we're part of the way with Joe Biden. We're going to do everything we can to help him not get uh, stymied by the Republicans when he uh, introduces 
good legislation, and we're going to keep the pressure on him in a loving way. Well, what, one last thing, just picking up on that. Did uh, did you see there was a, a small independent expenditure built around the messaging of settle for Biden that actually had – I mean, there were funny memes and – and so forth. But the the message was a very part of the way with LBJ kind of spirit of, hey, we got to get him in and then we're going to keep pushing. Yeah, I actually don't think that settle for Biden is a very inspiring slogan. I mean, the slogan should have been work your ass off for Biden and then keep the pressure on to try and make him the kind of president you want. I mean, settle for Biden is not the sort of slogan that really gets people animated or gets out the vote. I guess... I, I think filtered through the humor of generations X through Z that and especially with the actual messaging that came with it when you when you clicked on the images, it was all about working your ass off and all about the need to elect him, but trying to be intellectually honest that there were deficiencies. And I think that's that's the balance that we need to be able to have. Well, I absolutely agree with you that it's a tightrope act. On the one hand, you know, you don't you don't want people to feel so much that, uh, you know, this was our fifth choice that that we, we give up and get discouraged. But on the same time, you really want to motivate people to keep the pressure on. So you probably know um, what animates your generation better than I do. So let me uh, jump in with move us in a somewhat well building on this, but uh, pushing the conversation forward in the following way. One of the things the prospect has done is to, uh, and again, this has been going on for quite a couple of months, the idea of creating a day one agenda. And I take it that that's in part to indicate what the Biden regime can do regardless of Congress. And then second, measures that require Congress, but evaluating uh, what might be strategically the best things to be to be raised. You want to talk a bit about that effort? Sure. I think the last time I counted, it was 280 something executive actions that Biden can do with, without Congress. And happily, <laughs> Donald Trump has uh, paved the ground for that because he showed how the courts would let him shift money around from one appropriated use to another. And uh, Biden can do that. Biden has all kinds of executive authority over federal contracting. I mean, you could provide that nobody can bid on a federal contract who's not paying at least uh, $15 an hour, who's not in compliance with various labor laws, who's not giving uh, workers the right to organize. You know, you can use executive power in a wide variety of ways on, on the labor front. You, you, you can reprogram money. You can move money around. You can take money you know, away from Trump's wall and put it into into infrastructure. You can invoke the Defense Production Act and and uh, uh, force licensing of vaccine manufacture at a much more rapid rate. I mean, there are literally 280 items that Biden can do that make a difference. And uh, he can relieve student debt by executive order. He can, I believe, under public health authority, put a moratorium back on evictions even before Congress acts. So, and I think it's not just that he can enact good policies. It has a signaling function and a messaging function that I am on your side and Trump was not on your side. And here are some tangible things that I'm doing that show that I care about you. I care about the suffering that you are having to endure. And I'm doing everything I can until I get Mitch McConnell to act, to do what I can in my power as president. 
you mentioned student debt. I think maybe um, you and I kind of agree that that would be an example of a pretty dramatic move that could be done. Um, and in fact, is probably actively being debated right now among the Biden folks. Well, it's interesting. There, there's a lot of bad research that has had some influence on some of the Biden folks that, that argues that distributionally, because the typical person hasn't gone to college or graduated from college or gotten an advanced degree, that uh, you'd be disproportionately giving relief to people who don't need it. But if you unpack that and you look at how those numbers are calculated, uh, a lot of this is based on the Federal Reserve's calculation of household income, which takes the income of the top earner as a proxy for the whole household. And so you have millions of kids who've moved back in with their parents because they can't get any traction in their lives because they have so much student debt and they are mistakenly counted as wealthy. And the other thing you can do, which which Biden uh, has proposed, Schumer's proposed, Warren has proposed, you know, you cap the amount of relief at $50,000, which means that it's much better targeted. You could also uh, give 100% of debt relief uh, to people who got taken to the cleaners by for-profit colleges and universities and targeted downward much more effectively, which, which would also send a good message. But the major things that are going to actually make a difference in people's lives probably depend mostly on legislation that Congress has to pass, even if uh, the Democrats can win the Georgia seats, that that's going to be a very uphill battle. But I, uh, I've heard you say that there could be uh, even some some potentials for Republican splitting that might aid some of the measures that would make a real difference. What, what are you thinking of? I'm kind of an outlier on this, but uh, let me at least make the argument. McConnell let slip something very revealing, and this was reported very widely. He was on a phone call with members of his caucus, and he said, we have to do this $900 billion relief package because the fact that we're blocking it is killing us in Georgia, killing our candidates in Georgia. Now, if you extrapolate that and you imagine what life is going to be like at the peak of the pandemic and the peak of the economic damage in February and March, where more people are unemployed, people are losing their health insurance, people are being evicted. Uh, the hospitals are overflowing. There's going to be tremendous pressure on so-called red state senators, as well as blue state senators, to give their people some relief. And if you if you disaggregate the the various members of the Senate Republican Caucus, you've got three who are sort of traditional center right rather than Trumpistas. You you got Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney. So that's three. Then you got three or four more who are not running for re-election. So they don't have to be worried about being primaried by uh, Trumpy Republicans. Then you've got three or four who are worried about their own re-elections because you've got several Republicans who are having to defend seats in swing states. That gets you up to 10. Then you got two or three more who are just sort of pragmatists rather than hyper ideologues. Now, if those people start saying to McConnell, hey, you know what, we, we really uh, we really ought to let some relief through because our people are really hurting. And again, it's paradoxical. Here's, here's Joe Biden. None of us, I think, saw Biden as uh, our first choice because he's more centrist than a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren. But one of the benefits of that, he's got a long history of working with Republicans, of working across the aisle. 
So I will go out on a limb and predict that some kind of relief package beyond the 900 million that they're going to let through this weekend will probably pass in in February or March. And I think uh, one other that I've been thinking about is the minimum wage, which uh, voters in Florida very strongly supported across presumably party lines. Uh, there, That might be an important national legislative thing that could be achieved very quickly. Is that, is that something you're, you're thinking? Well, you, you put the minimum wage forward and you, you demonstrate your ability to do everything you can as president by, by using your executive power to require to federal contractors. But then you put legislation in and you win either way. Either the Republicans are pressured into uh, supporting it and it passes, or the Republicans get tarred with having opposed it. And either way, it's either a partisan win or an ideological win, or it's a win in the sense that you actually get a higher minimum wage through. So, yeah, there are things like that where you can take easy to understand measures that would benefit the average person all over the country. And you put it forward in the in the form of legislation and you dare Republicans to vote against it and you pressure them into passing it. And if they don't support it, then you have a great set of issues to run on in the 2022. So I just want to um, suggest that there's maybe three or so elements of activity that I'm gleaning from this conversation that have to happen. But if they happen, there's a considerable amount of hope. And, And that is, first, the capacities, and this is what we've been talking about mostly, of this administration to actually formulate these policies and push them through executive action and congressional proposals. Secondly, messaging by the administration around these things. FDR succeeded in part because of using radio for fireside chats that really did capture the engagement of tens of millions of Americans during the Depression. I'm not sure what equivalent might be developed, but maybe there are some that would make it more credible than people think that, yes, I, Biden, am on your side. I am speaking with you directly. I'm hearing you back. Uh, And that was part of FDR's appeal, I think, that he was able to do that. And the final piece, of course, is what the social movements, the progressive forces uh, that we've been referring to actually do to put pressure on to create the the kind of pressure that might deliver some of these things because the need to deliver them not just as campaign proposals but as real changes that people need that's what makes this moment so urgent because it's not just good things need to happen it's that things need to happen otherwise the catastrophes are going to build so I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to comment on that. But the final point that I've been thinking in is the crisis is so profound that there are even people on Wall Street who recognize the need for some uh, progressive reform and who might be uh, able to speak to that or use their influence to that. Well, two responses. First of all, uh, one of the most heartening things I saw in the past several days was was the the statement that the sunrise people put out after uh biden appointed his energy and environment team his climate team 
and it was as euphoric as anything you would have expected from anybody. And this is, you know, pretty well on the left side of the coalition that works within the Democratic Party. So by by appointing these folks, he taps into all of that grassroots energy that that might have been opposing him. I'm I said I I said I was optimistic. One of the things I'm pessimistic about is um, reform originating from Wall Street. And let me draw a distinction here. Wall Street would love the Federal Reserve to continue to turn the spigots wide open, to pump up the bond market, to pump up the stock market. But when you talk about reform that would change their business model, I, you know, you could have that meeting in a phone booth and we can explain to our listeners what a phone booth was. But there are not a lot of people on Wall Street who would be in favor of changing the fundamental business model of Wall Street. Now, the, the sinister thing, the insidious thing about the Wall Street Democrats is they tend to be liberal on everything else. They tend to be liberal on foreign policy. They tend to be liberal on gender. They tend to be liberal on race. They tend to be liberal on LGBT rights. And so they masquerade as liberals. But when it comes to reigning in the power of Wall Street, they're terrible. And uh, I think the way you rein them in is not by co-opting some of their numbers, but by just uh, using overwhelming force to pass regulations that they will use every ounce of power at their disposal to oppose. So that and it actually says that there's going to be a struggle continuing within the Democratic Party ranks and the liberal ranks uh, as we go forward in order to save the country. I think that's one way we've been framing this conversation. It's not only about changing the Democratic Party, it's actually about American democracy itself uh, depends on that kind of struggle that involves uh, strategies within the Democratic Party as well as more broadly. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us? Well, it brings us back to this question of class. You know, you might even call it a class struggle. <laughs> it's a class. It's a struggle between capital, represented by Wall Street, and labor, which represents everybody else. And it's a struggle for which side the Democratic Party is going to be on. And the fact that Franklin Roosevelt existed, the fact that Roosevelt during the New Deal sided more with labor than he did with Wall Street, tells us that sometimes when the stars align, this is actually possible but you have to work your tail off to make sure that it comes out right because the people who have so much economic muscle uh, turn that economic muscle into political muscle and they fight you every step of the way. So it's a never ending fight and things are looking a little bit better on that front than they might have looked because of the pandemic, because of the need for unity to get out Trump, because the appointments are better than one might have thought. That's the kind of thing that, that has to give you hope. And we hope that that hope can invigorate people uh, as we struggle forward. Yeah, this has been a really illuminating conversation, really educational one. And I'm really glad that we, we were able to tap into your expertise and your closeness to the arena of struggle, the level of struggle um, you know, over cabinet positions at the level of national policy, et cetera. That's a, just a great addition to our conversations that, that often get down very much into the local weeds. Um, so that's a great perspective. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for doing these. And, and thanks again for having me. So we're totally grateful for this and uh, keep in touch. We'll keep in touch with you. Thank you. And hope, hopefully we will survive and move forward. 
in 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 hope. Take care, Robert. Happy holidays and New Year to yeah, you. Yeah, thanks. And to you. Yeah, this is Roosevelt. Don't hang your head in pride.